This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Riccoli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 6. Lord Adjust Surrogate War Is there such a thing as bellum justum or a just war? This question has preoccupied philosophers and theorists of war since antiquity. Considering that warfare is about the management of violence and the application of brute force, war as a means to conduct policy has long been deemed morally reprehensible. Yet as far back as the Noahide laws, war has been a human activity within the law limits of morality and law. The realization that war at times is inevitable meant that philosophy and religion inspired a normative tradition confining the righteous conduct of warfare. The just war tradition therefore expresses our best moral thinking about how war ought to be conducted. The normative ambition to make war righteous, which pacifists might reject as an illusionary myth, is founded on a realist belief that war as a consequence of a social Darwinism might not be preventable. In the 21st century, when legitimacy has become a key factor, particularly in Western warfare, the just war tradition might be more relevant than ever before, even when breaches of the underlying moral and legal principles are still frequent. The idea of bellum justum in times of mediatized war performs an essential function for those attempting to fight wars from a high moral ground. As Alex J. Bellamy notes, quote, without ethical and legal constraints on both the decision to wage it and its conduct, war is nothing more than the application of brute force, logically indistinguishable from mass murder, end quote. Today, the socio-political consensus, even in the developing world, that war should not be limitless, has created new pressures on policymakers to at least appear moral and just in their application of force. The management of violence, even by authoritarian leaders such as Syria's Bashar al-Assad, has to at least appear morally justifiable amid global public scrutiny. Cicero's album, Silent Enim Legis Interarma, loosely translated as, In Time of War, the Law is Silent, might no longer be applicable to the contemporary moral discourse over warfare and violence. The norm of limited warfare applies not only to the funds and resources committed to the management of violence, but also to the proportionality of effects violence has on troops, civilians, civilian infrastructure in the theater. Long gone are the times when all is fair in love and war. Stemming from the 19th century idea of war as the ultimate clash of national wills over matter, matters of communal survival, Klaus Fitz and his peers perceived warfare as an act of violence that could, in theory, have no limits. He makes a case for the maximization of force in On War, stating that, quote, If one side uses force without compunction, undeterred by the bloodshed it, in bloodshed it involves, while the other side refrains, the first will gain the upper hand. End quote. Also, George Hegel, an advocate of rationality, could only see war as a duel on a massive scale, whereby, in his famous master-slave dialectic, one either dies with honor or subjects to the mastery of the winner. The existential nature of warfare had to prompt the employment of all means to achieve total victory. In other words, everything goes. Michael Walzer puts his view into a postmodern perspective. War in the late 20th century no longer justified total destruction. As Walzer observes, war is no longer judged by the operational maneuvers made on the battlefield, but by the conventions, practices, and institutions one abides by when managing violence. Victory at all costs can no longer be claimed as a victory, as it undermines legitimacy. Despite the facts that war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide are probably just as widespread as they have been throughout history, there nonetheless seems to be a consensus that UN member states should adhere to the laws of armed conflict. War crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide remain severe taints on a belligerent's reputation, even in times of Islamic State barbarism. One might say that surrogate warfare could help could help potential patrons to externalize not only the burden of warfare, but with it also possible war crimes. 
This chapter will shed light on the moral and legal implications of the externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates. Surrogate warfare in times of neo-Trinitarian war is far removed from the total war idea of Clausewitz and requires a strict adherence of the surrogate to the just war tradition in order to avoid generating an additional burden on the patron. The reason is that when surrogates fail to comply with the moral and legal principles that constitute a just war, they can potentially disrupt the patron-surrogate relationship, as misconduct can negatively reflect on the patron's reputation and even create a legal liability for the crimes committed by the surrogate. The Decision to Go to War, Jus Ad Bellum this chapter commences by looking at the jus ad bellum principles, namely those moral and legal traditions that are concerned with the decision of going to war. Questions of righteous motivations, a just cause, and legitimate authority are as much part of the jus ad bellum debate as concerned on the proportionality of the war and a reasonable chance of bringing the war to an end. The Just Cause at the core of the just war tradition is the debate about what constitutes a just cause for going to war. For what ends is it legitimate to apply violence? The most commonly accepted just cause has been self-defense, as Aristotle wrote in Politics. According to the Greek philosopher, military action is righteous for the ultimate end of preserving one's own polis from the influence of others. Self-defense is a recurring theme in the just war theoretical approach to the just cause. The who advanced the debate into the Middle Ages and were inspired by Judeo-Christian values of charity and altruism, considered self-defense and the protection of one's faith to be legitimate causes of war. Augustine and Aquinas, the most prominent medieval Christian philosophers, were still heavily influenced by the idea of a holy war in the name of God, an idea that has a conceptual overlap with jihad in Islam. Only in the 15th century did philosophers such as Christine de Pizan and Francisco de Vitoria reject the idea that a just war could be justified by differences in religion as a just cause. Rectifying wrongdoing, maintaining law and justice, and protecting innocence from unjust death were altruistic components that shaped the just cause debate beyond defending the Roman Catholic Church and its values. For de Vitoria, Self-defense went beyond the realist idea of one's own power, property, or territory to the lawful defense of the innocent from unjust death, even without authority. The Renaissance and the early Enlightenment brought with them a radical change in the power relations between the estates, and with it, the relationship between the church and the state. As the notion of the transnational socio-political entity of Christendom started to crumble, new ideas of community and communal interests arose that were aligned much closer with the ancient Greek concept of the polis. Europe began to disintegrate along the lines of states that, after the peace of Westphalia, could freely determine their religion and internal affairs. Erasmus of Rotterdam, Martin Luther, Hugo Grotius, and later Aymer de Vatel defended the idea of the communal right of self-determination and state sovereignty. Upholding public interests and public goods were deemed just causes. In accordance with Lockean and Hobbesian concepts of the social contract, the state's primary duty should be the upholding and maintenance of communal security. The state and its sovereignty after 1648 became sacrosanct concepts that would ultimately replace divine justice in God's command. The obsession of the just war tradition with state sovereignty went so far as to prioritize the rights of states over the rights of individuals. The United Nations Charter, which would codify the principle in 1945 into international law, is a case in point. In the Westphalian era, the just cause of war was the defense of territorial integrity and sovereignty of the state. Despite the debate about the moral imperative for the international community to protect human beings under threat when their state fails to satisfy its social contractarian duty to protect, a broad consensus remains today that any infringement on the sovereignty principle is a just cause for a state to go to war. The conditionality of the sovereignty principle that the concept of the responsibility to protect, R2P, introduced still falls short of establishing a perfect duty for states to use violence for the protection of individuals. The international legal system today remains state-centric, and the intervention of one state into another state is an unlawful and immoral act. Surrogate warfare can have a variety of causes— 
ranging from ideological motivations to the advancement of economic, trade, and security interests, even to greed. The list of causes for surrogate wars is, much, is not much shorter than the list of causes for regular wars. The difference lies in the motivations that patrons bring forward to justify why they choose warfare by surrogate over conventional warfare. As discussed in Chapter 3, for patrons, surrogate wars in the 21st century are rarely about self-defense or the survival of the community. In the words of Martin Luther, surrogate wars tended to be wars of desire or wars of choice rather than wars of necessity. Consequently, Postmodern surrogate warfare is often motivated by a mix of the need for deniability and discretion when fighting wars of choice rather than wars of necessity. The predominant consideration for patrons seems to be the lack of urgency in relationship to the anticipated costs of intervention. That is to say, for patrons more often than not, survival interests are not at stake when externalizing the burden of warfare. Patrons tend to employ surrogates when the interests concerned are so peripheral that a conventional, large-scale deployment of regular infantrymen cannot be justified. Hence, also bearing in mind that the use of human and technological surrogates overseas violates the sovereignty of states, the cause of surrogate wars from a patron's point of view might be morally questionable. Yet, in regard to the surrogates' causes, patrons might have a righteous motivation to go to war. When communities strive for communal self-determination, supporting these groups might be a just cause. A human surrogate looking to partner with an external force to subsidize his or her fight for communal self-defense and security as a public good might have a just cause as long as violence is an act of last resort. Also, when a patron intervenes to support a surrogate's agenda to resist atrocities committed against the community the surrogate represents, surrogate war might have a just cause. An example might be the Arab Gulf states' support after 2012 for moderate Syrian rebels who represented a sectarian group persecuted by the government of Syria and had a legitimate claim to resort to violence as an act of self-defense. This line of argument, however, becomes problematic when it is no longer possible to ascertain whether a surrogate actually advances communal interests as public goods or has ulterior motives to achieve private interests. The Legitimate Authority Another core principle in the Jews ad bellum debate is that war should be waged only by a, quote, legitimate authority, end quote. Whereas in religious writing, the legitimate authority usually lies with God and his representatives on earth, secular philosophers have replaced the church or the caliph with the state. Since the Renaissance, the legitimate authority to wage war has been believed to be held by the entity that bears responsibility for communal security. Erasmus of Rotterdam already assigned the legitimate authority of war to the good prince, who as a public figure provides public security to his community. This idea is further developed throughout the Enlightenment in the concept of the social contract. Hobbes, and later Locke, believed that the state as the authority providing public security holds the authority to wage war. Particularly in Jean-Jacques Rousseau's liberal interpretation of the concept, ultimately the state as a servant of public interests is only the executive agent of the people. It follows that the ultimate legitimate authority to wage war lies with the people who bring the state into existence. With the rise of nationalism toward the end of the 18th century, the ultimate authority over war and peace was manifested in the nation-state, something that was reflected as well in the legal traditions emanating from the Peace of Westphalia. Deviating from the liberal ideas of Rousseau's state, Hegel went so far as to attribute the state with superior rationality over the public will of individuals. As he writes in Philosophy of Rights, quote, The nation-state is the spirit in its substantial rationality and immediate actuality, and is therefore the absolute power on earth. Each state is consequently a sovereign and independent entity in relations to others. End quote. The supremacy of the state as the ultimate authority on earth remains the foundation of the international legal system today. Despite the de facto integration of the state-centric system, many scholars still hold on to the SMOV, a concept originating in Max Weber's 1919 pamphlet, Politics as Vocation. As in the case of surrogate warfare, when a state patron externalizes the burden of warfare to non-state actors, the state can retain aspects of its monopoly over violence, provided it is able to regulate the surrogate, which is analyzed in the previous chapter, becomes more increasingly difficult.
Yet the concept of the SMOV appears more and more blurry amid the 21st century reality of top-down and bottom-up privatization of force. As the causes of war are no longer state-centric but involve communal, commercial, and individual security interests that are not catered for by statutory but neo-Trinitarian forces, the idea of the state as the monopolist over violence is an illusion. Mary Caldor, accepting the fact that the state can no longer exercise the authority over violence, argues that in this anarchic environment, no alternative actor exists that has the authoritative legitimacy to manage violence. The counter-argument to this would be that as long as non-state actors are providing public security for their community, even if outside the Trinitarian legitimacy of the state, they do so with communal legitimacy. And this is where surrogate warfare could potentially combine the regulatory authority of the state patron with the communal legitimacy of the surrogate who fights for communal self-determination or local public security. When locals provide security to locals, the sponsoring state might have more legitimacy for intervention than when putting its own troops on the ground. However, to what extent does a state have the legitimate authority to intervene in what would be an internal conflict between the surrogate and the central governing authority of the host state? A patron support of surrogates on the ground without the invitation of the host state is a clear violation of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter because the patron has no legitimate authority to involve himself in the domestic affairs of the host. Morally, one could argue that if communal interests of a minority were threatened or not protected by the host state, the patron would have the legitimate authority to help the surrogate protect its communal interests, which is at the heart of the R2P. The subjectivity of this debate, however, might provide sufficient grounds for legitimizing any external sponsoring of surrogates, a challenge for the consistent application of the R2P as well. While the West builds a case for supporting Syrian rebel forces against the Assad regime, Russia might legitimize its support for secessionists in Ukraine and Iran, could legitimize its support for Hezbollah in Syria and Shia militaries in Iraq. The question of legitimate authority arises as well when patrons engage in covert operations overseas in other states using technological surrogates. Externalizing the burden of warfare to UAVs, states can bring violence to bear without being in a state of war with the host state. In counterterrorism operations executed by drones, the patron engages in law enforcement operations, killing citizens of the host state with or without its consent. By overriding the authority and legitimacy of local government, drone operations undermine the sovereignty of the host state. In the example of American UAV operations against al-Qaeda or the Taliban in Pakistan, the U.S. government externalizes the burden of warfare to drones that, among other things, kill Pakistani citizens in Pakistan without the Pakistani government being able to protect them. Drone strikes undermine the Pakistani so. Pakistani government's social contractarian duty, and with it, its legitimate authority. The same is true for American drone operations in Somalia and Yemen. The U.S. government does not have the legitimate authority to execute law enforcement operations through targeted killings of non-U.S. citizens overseas. Looking at legitimate authority from a domestic viewpoint, the externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates undermines, at least in liberal democracies, democratic checks and balances. It deprives democratic governments the legitimate authority to wage wars as the public has fewer or no reasons to scrutinize executive action. Emerging from the social contractarian tradition, whereby the state is a mere agent of society, the legitimacy of state action can derive only from the public consent. Based on this observation, Kant constructed the democratic peace theory. Kant argued that, it, quote, if this consent of the citizens is required in order to decide that war should be declared, nothing is more natural than that they would be very cautious in commencing such a poor game, decreeing for themselves all the calamities of war, end quote. Following that logic, democratic states are less likely to go to war with one another because the public's fear and reservation for war exacerbates the state's ability to invest public resources and lives for the, for the management of violence. Externalizing the human and financial costs of war means that the political costs for liberal states to wage war, arising from public opinion, are externalized as well. 
Consequently, the cabinet wars that could be waged by the executive branch with limited legislative and judiciary oversight would facilitate the resort to war while undermining the legitimate authority of the liberal state to wage war. The democratic hurdle of going to war would be circumvented, allowing the executive branch and surrogate wars to manage violence without public approval. In the U.S., Congress holds the constitutional authority to conduct paramilitary operations, even to hire private individuals and issue letters of mark. Yet, since the 1980s, the Intelligence Authorization Act has permitted the executive branch, that is, the president and his administration, to conduct covert operations without congressional approval. Therefore, CIA-led operations using human or technological surrogates can be conducted in the shadows of public scrutiny, thereby undermining the legitimacy of the executive authority of the U.S. government. Proportionality of Surrogate Warfare The ambition to achieve proportionality is at the heart of both the Jus ad bellum and Jus in bello debate. In an effort to limit the negative effects of war and violence, the effects of war have to be proportionate to the ends one wishes to achieve. That is to say, there needs to be a proportionality between the wrong to be prevented and the human and financial costs of military action. Thus, the question of proportionality always involves a subjective judgment regarding the worth of the cause, the likely costs and casualties of war, and a judgment about the relationship of the two values to each other. Involving estimates and probabilities not based on facts but on value judgment, the definition of proportionality can never be exact. What constitutes good and what constitutes bad remains in the eye of the beholder. In reference to surrogate warfare, the question of proportionality has to ask whether the resort to warfare by surrogate is proportionate to the ends the the patron is willing to achieve. That is, whether the externalization of the burden of warfare is more proportionate to the overall objective than employing the patron's own military. At first sight, employing human or technological surrogates appears to be more proportionate to the widely peripheral objectives of these wars than launching a full-scale major combat operation. With fewer external boots on the ground, the footprint of surrogate wars is comparatively small and promises to have fewer disruptive effects in the short term than a major combat operation. However, looking at the long-term costs of war, human surrogate operations bear the risk of generating disproportionate ripple effects. Training, equipment, and arming local human surrogates inevitably leads to an escalation of conflict whereby the surrogate's relative power and influence vis-a-vis other belligerents in the theater increases, particularly when the surrogate is an insurgent or rebel group challenging central government authority. A well-funded statutory military will respond to an increased internal challenge with more violence. A similar dynamic can be triggered by the use of technological surrogates whose collateral damages alienate the local populations. Surrogate wars can, therefore, set in motion a vicious cycle of violence and retaliation that evades the control of the patron. Whereas a patron can decide to withdraw his own regular forces from a conflict zone as a means to de-escalate tension, such an option does not exist when using a human surrogate. The reason is that once arms and equipment have been delivered to the surrogate, it is nearly impossible to disarm or demobilize the surrogate while hostilities are ongoing. Hence, surrogate warfare might not be the most proportionate option available in the long run if the chances of surrogate success are hard to predict. The criterion of a reasonable chance of success is related to the question of proportionality as well. Wars should be waged only if they are the most proportionate means to achieve a long-term condition for peace and stability after hostilities have ceased. Arguments can be made that surrogate wars have a higher chance of success in cases of counterinsurgency when the patron substitutes his own statutory forces with local forces who maintain a close bond to the local population. Also, Patrons are more willing to commit to military operations in which the main burden of war is not borne by itself, but by local forces, allowing the patron to be more committed and engaged in the long term. However, the lack of control means that surrogate wars run the risk of primarily serving the surrogate's agenda rather than the patron's agenda, a problem when the self-interested objectives of the surrogate collide with the overall objectives of the patron. 
then a surrogate war might not have a probable chance of success and consequently might generate negative effects without actually achieving the just cause desired by the patron. Taking the long view, surrogate wars often lack the potential of quickly achieving a condition for peace and stability, causing a conflict to further escalate. Thereby, the costs of returning to peace increase over time. Finally, proportionality is also related to the principle of last resort, which holds that war should always be an act of last resort once all other options are exhausted. As already discussed, above, surrogate wars seem to have lower thresholds for patrons to go to war as the costs for intervention are relatively low, both financially and politically. Thus, surrogate warfare opens new doors for patrons to engage in war even if non-kinetic or non-violent means have not yet been completely exhausted. Providing the potential patrons with degrees of plausible deniability, both domestically and internationally, patrons can engage in surrogate wars as a causal, coercive effort to shape the outcomes of political situations. In cases where an escalation of a conflict using military means might entail significant costs, including the costs of undermining diplomatic efforts, war by surrogate provides a cheap option to put pressure on a conflict coercively. Hence, externalizing the burden of warfare very likely facilitates the resort to violence, which in turn makes warfare a casual means of implementing foreign and security policy objectives. The Conduct of War, Juice in Bellow In the second half of this chapter, we are going to look at Juice in Bellow, that is, the debate about righteous conduct in war. The key question here is whether surrogate warfare could potentially allow patrons to outsource war crimes and grave human rights abuses to surrogates. Juice in Bellow sets the limits for the use of force in war. In an effort to keep the negative external externalities of war to a bare minimum, Juice and Bellow, which is codified in the LOAC, aims at protecting those who are not directly participating in hostilities while limiting the force used to the amount necessary to achieve military objectives. At the core of the Juice and Bellow tradition lies the idea that civilians have to be spared from violence because they enjoy immunity. More precisely, those deemed to be non-combatants, that is, people who do not directly engage in hostilities, must not be targeted by combatants. As laid down in the principle of distinction, belligerents have to make an, effect, an effort to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants when applying force. Further, force ought to be applied proportionally to the military advantage of, legit, of legitimate target generates for the opponent. Similar to strategic proportionality in the Juice at Bellum debate, the proportionality principle holds that the military advantage achieved from any action must be in proportion to the harm inflicted on the opponent's armed forces and, in exceptional circumstances, his civilian population and infrastructure. Considering the complexity of armed forces in the 21st century, the definition of what constitutes a combatant what constitutes a legitimate target, and what is the referent object in the proportionality debate becomes increasingly difficult. Yet for the discussion of the implications of surrogate warfare on Juice and Bellow in this chapter, answering these questions might go too far. Instead, we will look at one issue that appears to be the most pressing in regard to warfare by surrogate, the issue of patron responsibility in case of grave surrogate misconduct under the LOAC. Patron Responsibility for Human Surrogate Misconduct In the decades after the end of the Cold War, most war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other atrocities were committed by non-state actors or non-state surrogates supported by legitimate governments. This has put a significant stress on the compliance of belligerent parties with the LOAC because non-state actors feel compelled to resort to unconventional strategies and tactics in an effort to counterbalance their military disadvantage. Nonetheless, despite the fact that non-state actors find it easier to evade prosecution, they are subject to the same juice and bellow pr principles as state actors. Thus, the non-compliance of human surrogates with the LOAC is a problem that the patrons believing that they are able to circumvent prosecution by simply externalizing war crimes to non-state actors. Yet, patrons are under certain conditions responsible for the crimes committed by their surrogates, as this section will illustrate. In 1995, the U.S. government, unwilling to put its own boots on the ground in Bosnia, delegated the burden of ground warfare to a commercial surrogate, the PMSC Military Professional Resources Incorporated, 
MPRI, to prepare the Croatian army of 100,000 men for the final battle against Serbian forces on the Krajina front. MPRI sent advisors on behalf of the U.S. government to not only train the armed forces, but also support them operationally in battle through scenario planning and battle plan design. The surrogate, supported by Western air power, was able to achieve decisive military victory within days. Intervening in a highly polarized ethnic conflict, the U.S. government relied on a party with vested interest in the conflict to engage Serbian forces on the ground. The consequences of this short surrogate war were severe human rights abuses. In a U.S. district court, the operation was described as an aggressive, systematic military attack and bombardment on a demilitarized civilian population that had been placed under the protection of the United Nations. Operation Storm was designed to kill or forcibly expel the ethnic Serbian residents of the Krajina region from Croatian territory just because they were a minority religio-ethnic group. The allegations against the U.S. surrogate ranged from ethnic cleansing to summary executions. Allegedly, more than 200,000 Serbian civilians were forcibly expelled from their homes in the Krajina region, and several hundred civilians were executed. Entire areas were flattened with little consideration for human life, violating the principle of distinction and proportionality. The plaintiffs in the U.S. District Court went so far as to accuse MPRI of complicity in genocide, a bold accusation that the court did not accept. Nevertheless, MPRI, as a U.S. contractor, should have known about the delicate relationship between the surrogate and the target population and should have refrained from supporting a party to an ethnic conflict with little consideration for the civilian lives of the opponent. The example of the Revolutionary United Front, RUF, as a rebel army operating in Sierra Leone in the 1990s, shows how patrons can effectively employ surrogates to secure their personal business interests overseas. The RUF formed as a local insurgency movement trying to topple the Sierra Leonean government with the aim of establishing the equality and liberty of the local population, an agenda that was never implemented. Early on in the process of formation, Charles Taylor, the president of neighboring Liberia, provided support to the organization in an effort to seize control of Sierra Leone's diamond mines. The RUF developed into Taylor's personal army, trained, equipped, and directed by Liberian president. In the course of RUF operations, tens of thousands of civilians were maimed, tortured, sexually assaulted, or killed. As the Human Rights Watch report stored, stated in 1999, quote, By the end of January, both government and independent sources estimated that several thousands of civilians had been killed. The rebels dragged entire family units out of their homes and murdered them, hacked off the hands of children and adults, burned people alive in their houses, and rounded up hundreds of young women, took them to urban rebel bases, and sexually abused them, end quote. The war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by the RUF in this conflict are well documented and led to Taylor's indictment before the ICC. As a surrogate of Taylor's agenda of greed, the RUF committed horrific atrocities across Sierra Leone, war crimes for which Taylor was convicted in 2012 of aiding and abetting. In the Middle East, many of the rebels and militia groups that have emerged over the past decade, particularly amid the Arab Spring, have been involved in atrocities, sometimes fighting local regimes, sometimes fighting other rebels. Often these non-state actors under arms have enjoyed the sponsorship from foreign patrons. Among the most infamous non-state actors exercising violence in the Middle East today are the many Shia militaries operating in Syria and Iraq. The modern history of Shia militaries in the Middle East is one that dates back to the Iranian Revolution of 1979, when the newly founded Islamic Republic of Iran began exporting its Islamic Revolution to the Arab world. Vital to the creation, funding, and training of militias in Lebanon and Iraq was the IRGC and its Quds Force, the ideological elite of Iran's armed forces. The IRGC systematically supported Shia communities in the Arab world to become bulwarks for the Islamic Revolution and surrogates in Iran's fight against Israel and Saddam Hussein. After the invasion of Iraq in 2003, many of the exiled Shia militaries returned home to assume their role as communal protectors in a disintegrating Iraqi state. 
the decision by the Coalition Provisional Authority to dismantle Saddam's Ba'ath Party and his armed forces created a vacuum that non-state actors could easily fill. Some militias, such as the Bad- as the Badr Corps and the Sadrist militias, rose to become strong challengers to the central government. By the time that ISIS crossed into Iraq from Syria in early 2014, Iraq's military had been hollowed out and was unable to resist the onslaught of the jihadists, and the only capable forces able to protect Baghdad and communities in the south were the Shia militias of the Popular Mobilization Units, PMU. Iran's support of these non-state actors through arms, money, and sophisticated training made them forces to reckon with. Despite their operational success in stopping the advance of ISIS and later also assisting the Iraqi government to reclaim lost territory from ISIS, the militias have been repeatedly accused of committing atrocities and disregarding international humanitarian law. According to Human Rights Watch, Shia militaries have been witnessed looting, torching, and blowing up civilian dwellings, forcefully expelling local civilians, and detaining, torturing, and killing prisoners. Not only have Shia militias repeatedly violated the LOAC, but they have also undermined the fragile sectarian balance of power in Iraq by predominantly targeting Sunni communities in their operations. Hence, as these examples illustrate, non-state actors acting as surrogates are frequently involved in human rights abuses, war crimes, and other violations of the LOAC, in spite of the fact that the principles of juice and bellow and good conduct in war apply to state and non-state actors alike. Article 3 of the 1949 Geneva Conventions prescribes obligations to each party to a conflict, including rebel and militia forces, particularly when these engage in acts of national liberation. Also, the Rome Statute of 1998 establishing the ICC makes a strong reference to criminal liability of individuals and non-state organizations when seriously violating the laws and customs of armed conflict. In principle, the ICC can hold non-state actors accountable for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. However, without trying to take away from the ICC's success, its process of indictment and prosecution as well as its chronic lack of capacity leave most atrocities unprosecuted. Nonetheless, the argument that warfare by surrogate allows patrons to externalize war crimes to evade prosecution is at least in principle not convincing. There is a range of case law and codified international law that deals with the question of state responsibility for unlawful acts potentially by non-state actors. The essential question at the heart of this debate about the extent to which a state patron can be held accountable for the misconduct of its surrogates is whether the surrogate acts as an effective organ of the patron state. This debate returns to the issue of control, because for the conduct of a human surrogate to be attributable to a state, the patron has to have a degree of control over the surrogate. Human surrogates, both direct and indirect, are rarely organs of the state, as by definition the patron externalizes the burden of warfare to organizations that have no or obscure links to the command and control center of the sponsoring state. However, surrogates could act as quasi-organs of the state when empowered by the patron to exercise elements of governmental authority. An example is PMSCs that, by executing an inherently governmental function such as guarding prisoners, become de facto organs of the state. The reason is that in this case the association between the autonomous commercial entity and the client state is formalized in a common law contract. Thus, in cases where PMSCs operate in conflict zones as soldier surrogates exercising inherently governmental functions, as was the case with contractors in Iraq manning prisoner of war camps, PMSCs could potentially be labeled as quasi-state organs. In most cases by humans of warfare by human surrogate, however, the command and control relationship between the patron and the surrogate is even further obscured. Article 8 of the International Law Commission's Draft Articles on the Responsibility of States for Internationally Wrongful Acts provides the most applicable, codified legal reference to the case of state responsibility in surrogate warfare. Here, it states that, quote, the conduct of a person or group of persons shall be considered an act of a state under international law if the person or group of persons is in fact acting on the instructions of, or under the direction and control of, that state in carrying out the conduct, end quote. The important concepts in Article 8 are 
under the direction or control of. Returning to the question of patron control, any tribunal that would attribute state responsibility has to clarify to what degree the patron was actually in a position to influence or alter the conduct of the surrogate. In the famous 1986 case, the Republic of Nicaragua versus the United States of America, which dealt with the question of whether the conduct of the Nicaraguan Contras as U.S. surrogates could be attributed to the U.S., the International Court of Justice found that, quote, despite the heavy subsidies and other support provided to them by the U.S., there is no clear evidence of the United States having actually exercised such a degree of control in all fields as to justify treating the Contras as acting on its behalf, end quote. In this decision, the court established the argument that the action of a surrogate could be attributed to a patron only when this patron has effective control over the surrogate's activities, that is, when it is able to exercise sufficient pressure on the surrogate to direct his actions. That is to say that the patron has to have a degree of operational or tactical control over the surrogate. To be more precise, based on the effective control test, any misconduct of the surrogate can be attributed to the patron only where certain members of those surrogate forces happen to have been specifically charged by the patron's authorities to commit a particular act. Thus, the patron would need to have his organs embedded within the surrogate forces and exercise effective command and control over surrogate operations. While, for example, SOF who conduct train and equip missions do not have de jure control over the surrogate, they most likely also do not have de facto control over the surrogate. With few means available to the patron's SOF commander to enforce discipline beyond force of personality or the threat to withdraw strategic support, the relationship between liaison teams and surrogates rarely, if ever, amounts to a superior-subordinate relationship. It follows that SOF liaison officers can only rely on influence to prevent surrogate misconduct. This reading of control as effective control establishes a very high threshold for state responsibility that would allow states to at least legally evade any responsibility for surrogate misconduct. Since the end of the Cold War, however, the moral and legal debate about states' responsibility has slightly changed. As Gordon Christensen explained, quote, The tendency of those in power to achieve their ends through private or non-state actors, thereby avoiding attribution, engenders a wide range of conduct by inaction, where both deniability and non-attribution serve to enhance the power of those in control of a state, end quote. The strict interpretation of control by the IJC in Nicaragua v. United States has created a shield behind which patrons can hide when employing surrogates domestically and externally to breach international law and international humanitarian law. The appeals chamber in the International Com Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia pointed out in the case against Bosnian Serb paramilitary leader Dusko Tadic that the overall control over a surrogate should be deemed sufficient to hold the patron legally accountable. Overall control refers to the patron's strategic control over the surrogate, that is, organizing, coordinating, and planning of surrogate operations without having direct control over particular surrogate tactical action. As the appeals chamber explained, the rationale behind state responsibility is to, quote, prevent states from escaping international responsibility by having private individuals carry out tasks that may or may not should be performed by state of officials, end quote. Although the IJC rejected the appeal chambers' argument, it seems as if in the light of the increased non-state actor involvement in war as surrogates, the moral and legal debate on state responsibility might be changing. The precedent of Nicaragua v. United States might not be enough to reject the overall control argument, which seems to be in accordance with the intent of the ILC's Article 8 in customary international law. Also, one sh should consider the ruling of the IJC in Bosnia-Herzegovina v. Serbia and Montenegro, in which it is laid out that even when a state patron has no effective control over the surrogate, the patron nonetheless can be held accountable for the surrogate's acts of genocide when it fails to take all necessary precautions to stop the surrogate from committing such acts. War crimes and crimes against humanity, however, do not fall into this category. Returning to the three cases of surrogate misconduct introduced in the beginning of this section, it would be difficult to legally establish state responsibility for a surrogate's action. 
In the first case, MPRI could be considered a de facto state organ of the DOD because the relationship was established through a formal contract. The question, however, that would be difficult to answer is whether MPRI as a de facto state organ could be held responsible for the atrocities committed by the Croatian army as a secondary surrogate. The case that was brought in front of a U.S. district court was rejected on the ground of the court's lack of jurisdiction on the matter. In the second case, the ICC established the direct personal responsibility of Charles Taylor. However, no case was brought against the state of Liberia. Arguably, the RUF's atrocities were at times executed under, under the direction of Liberian officials, possibly providing a legal base to establish that Liberia had effective state control over RUF operations. The last case is a lot more complex. Although some of the Shia militaries have received training and funding from representatives of the IRGC, it is almost impossible to determine to what extent Iran controls Shia military operations. The commandant of the Quds Force, the IRGC's branch for overseas engagement, Qassam Soleimani, has been repeatedly cited on the battlefield alongside Shia militiamen in Syria and Iraq, fueling the allegations that Iran is definitely involved and directly involved in directing Shia military operations. Soleimani's repeated proximity to the battlefield and Shia militias suggest that Iran has at least overall, if not effective, control over some of its surrogate operations in Iraq and Syria. The international community seldom has the courage or reaches the consensus to hold perpetrators of war crimes accountable. While a lot of progress has been made with the ICC to hold individuals accountable for grave human rights abuses, the IJC still gives precedence to rights of states over those of individuals. The ICTY and its rulings have provided new case law that, at least in theory, could be used to protect both victims of atrocities and prosecute their perpetrators. Yet until both the law and the institutions to enforce it become more capable and coherent, Surrogate warfare de facto provides means for state patrons to externalize the responsibility for war crimes and crimes against humanity. The only hope is that with an increased on reliance on force partnering by Western and non-Western states, the international community, as well as the legal debate, will invest in new approaches to hold those responsible for war crimes to account, both patrons and surrogates. Patrons should invest in developing capable monitoring and oversight mechanisms to ensure that surrogates comply with the LOAC. Conclusion It would be too generic to state that the externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates in a contemporary 21st century context is inherently good or evil. From the point of view of the just war tradition, surrogate warfare can have potential benefits, it might help local communities to fight for self-determination or protect themselves against oppression. Local communities can be empowered through the sponsorship of patrons to fulfill their social contractarian demand for communal security while simultaneously serving the patron's agenda. Rather than having foreign soldiers in uniform provide local security overseas, locals can take security measures into their own hands, building socio-political order that might be more sustainable and more in accordance with local traditions and customs. Thus, in surrogate warfare, belligerents are at times more likely to have a just cause or legitimate authority than when foreign powers deploy their soldiers overseas for humanitarian causes. The latter, unlike locals, will always fight for ulterior motives that are alien to the nature of the conflict at hand. However, surrogate warfare lowers the threshold for patrons to go to war. By circumventing traditional popular or democratic hurdles to resorting to war, patrons have now found a means to fight cabinet wars for potentially questionable ends. Resources can be provided to surrogates with few political costs involved, achieving strategic and operational objectives without putting their own soldiers in harm's way. A problem when the patron pursues self-interested objectives of power, lust, and greed, but an opportunity when the patron feels enabled to pursue humanitarian objectives. The reason is that surrogate warfare can help the state to potentially live up to the responsibility to protect strangers in need, which it might ignore if it had to rely on its own military. Surrogate warfare runs the risk of making the use of violence a more causal lever of power for patrons. 
Although it promises to provide the patron with short-term opportunities to achieve strategic and operational objectives at minimal costs, the long-term costs of surrogate warfare affect the patron, the surrogate, and the local population. The chances of success might become peripheral for the patron when the costs of war are that low and warfare is no longer a means of last resort. Surrogate warfare allows the patron to maintain an input into the simmering wars of the 21st century for an indefinite time, a military advantage in an era when decisive victory is hard to measure. Morally, it begs the question of whether the externalization of warfare is actually the most proportionate means to achieve an ambiguous concept of victory. From a perspective of Juice and Bellow, surrogates are by no means more or less moral in their application of force than regular soldiers. Also, the argument that, because of the vague international humanitarian law, regime surrogates can get away with murder is hardly convincing. The sheer opportunity to commit a crime with guaranteed amnesty does not make someone a criminal. Nonetheless, while air power used as a standalone surrogate generates morally and legally questionable effects, human surrogates have repeatedly avoided prosecutions for war crimes committed. As human surrogates are often unprofessional military forces operating in a legal vacuum with insufficient oversight and control, the horrors of war have prompted surrogates to disregard the standards for righteous conduct in war. Assad's Shabiha militias have been made responsible for atrocities against the predominantly Sunni civilian population in the Syrian civil war. The Hutu government's militia in Jirahamwe facilitated the Rwandan genocide on the country's Tutsis in 1994. The YPG, America's surrogate in Syria against the Islamic State, has been accused of ethnic cleansing of Arab villages. The militias of the Khmer Rouge committed crimes against humanity after their purge in 1979 as a surrogate of Thailand, China, and the United States against the People's Republic of Kampuchea. Particularly in wars along ethnic and sectarian lines polarized by ideological narratives, human surrogates have engaged in prehistoric savagery, as have states as well. It is here where patrons have to invest more in ensuring that their surrogates comply with the standards of righteous conduct, and the international community has to do more to ensure that both patrons and surrogates are held accountable for atrocities committed. Surrogate warfare still makes it too easy for patrons to bypass legal responsibility for severe violations of human rights. As non-state actors clash in barbarous battles abandoning the laws of war, state patrons have to use their influence, however little they might have, to guarantee that surrogates do not fight wars in which the law is silent.